Welcome to the Boom Boom Performance Podcast, your resource for science-based training and nutrition, data-driven coaching, and education-focused content. Before we get into this podcast, I just want to say thank you for taking the time to listen and learn with me so that you can apply what you are about to learn, take my strategies, use these tools, and finally have some serious methods to see sustainable success with your physique, your mind, and your life. This podcast was built on the foundation of applied education, and I'm excited for you to be here so you can have that experience with me. Now, without any further ado, let's get on to the show. Before we dive knee deep into the amazing questions that we have today, um, there's just a few things I want to throw out there. Uh, just random thoughts <laughs> that I had. Um, the first one being, I just recorded an outstanding podcast with my good friend, Mike Milner. Um, I'm going to link that in the show notes. We, he just interviewed me on, I don't even know what the topic was, to be honest with you. We talked about a little bit of training. We're going to do a part two because we talked for an hour and a half and didn't get into the training side of things, really. We answered like one question at the end. But we touched on nutrition and we touched heavily on the mindset of both coaching and being coached. And uh, I think everything we talked about was much more about how to see results from a non-strategical standpoint. And what I mean by that is it's so much more than just having a set of macros and following them. Although we did dive into macros and periodization and and what I find important inside of that whole realm of nutrition. Uh, But we, we talked a lot about just like where your mind needs to be at, what you should be focusing on with education, um, what you need to do to be the best coach possible, how you need to be in order to be coached as greatly as possible. Um, I really think you guys should check out that episode. Link in the show notes. Really, really good podcast that I just did. Um, The other thing I wanted to bring up was inside that conversation and inside a lot of the questions that I'm getting inside of Instagram just brings up the, honestly, just the idea of how important having a coach is. Um, I was talking to somebody about this the other day. Right now, I have somebody who helps me with my life. Uh, shout out to Andreas and La Tribu. Um, he's a mentor of mine, somebody I've known for years, very successful business owner. In fact, he's who helped me sell my last, buy my last house and sell it and then buy my new house too. Um, so very, very successful entrepreneur. He is in the gym business. He's in the real estate business. He's in many other businesses. He's really big into charity. Um, I'm excited to say that I am contributing uh, to a, a pretty big charity fund with him. Um, and I'm also going to be creating a side of our business that contributes to charity on a monthly basis. I'm really excited about that. We're just kind of in the process of getting things dialed in to where we don't really got to think twice of it, but rather like constant payments are being sent. Um, uh, anyway, really, really respect that dude. But he, he helps me a lot with my life, my life, my relationships, my organization and accountability. Um, I also have a mentor, Jason Phillips, who a lot of you guys know, who I just had on the podcast. Highly recommend that one. I'll link that in the show notes as well. Um, And there's much, much more to come. You guys have no idea (laughs) what me and Jason are about to do. It's going to be amazing. And people are going to be, you guys are in for a treat. Let's just say that, especially the coaches out there. Uh, But Jason Phillips, he's kind of like, he helps me with business and strategy. I mean, he, and he's honestly just a good friend. We're, we're taking our relationship to a new level and you guys will soon see what that is like, but he's been a mentor of mine. 
I have uh, a nutritionist. So shout out to Christopher Barricat, who I've also had on the podcast more than once, who is a good friend of mine, um, who is knee deep in the research and he does my nutrition. I have somebody who is taking over my training separate to Chris. <laughs> so I have another person that coaches me. Shout out to Kyle Ruth from Training Think Tank. He is uh, just recently taking over my training. We're going to shift gears and focus on performance. My point being with this is I have four coaches I invest in on a monthly basis. Think about that. Four coaches. First of all, it just goes to show you that I really fucking believe what I do, uh, believe in what I do. But I find that, you know, I keep getting – I get a lot of questions on Instagram um, and sent to my email and some of them are extremely detailed and I'll have full-blown conversations with people and I'm diving into their diets. I'm trying to help them as much as I can, but there's only so much I can do inside of a DM and on this podcast. The reason I'm saying this is because me and Mike talked about the idea of having a coach and why that is so beneficial outside of prescriptions, meaning just because somebody is implementing macros for you or implementing a training program for you, there's so much more to having a coaching relationship inside of accountability and inside of education around the process. Because when you are educated on the process for you individually, you have less diet hopping, you have less program ADD, you have less inconsistencies, you have less confusion, you have more self-awareness, you have more self-belief, and you actually trust the process. And at the end of the day, if you trust the process, you are more likely to actually see an end result because you are more focused on the process rather than the end result. When you get so engulfed in the end result and all you are thinking about is the end result, you're clouded by the emotional buy-in of the reward and you're forgetting about the logical and the strategical process that actually gets you there. I took a long pause because I want you guys to think about what I just said. When you were too engulfed in the emotional buy-in to the end result, you neglect the strategical and the theoretical process that gets you there. And when you forget about those processes, you have no education, therefore you build no self-awareness, therefore you cannot achieve any self-belief. And if you do not have self-belief, consistency is literally impossible. I could end the podcast right there. Sometimes I really wish I had a mic in my hand. I have a headset on. I wish I had a mic so I could just fucking boom, drop it. But my point was, is we went deep into this on Mike's podcast and it's just such a big deal. It's why I have four coaches. It's why I talk to four people about four different aspects of my life. I want accountability. I want to engulf myself in the process, not the end result. I'm chasing the unicorn here. So... Part of the reason I want to start up with this is because, again, I kind of use this podcast as my outlet to speak and almost like verbally journal um, to share with you guys and educate with you guys. But it's such a big key to this game because, I mean, fuck, at the end of the day, it's the only way to see longevity inside your results. And it's the only way to repeatedly see and achieve results. And I think it's just so unbelievably important. And, and I, you know, I get it is September. We have October, November, December left. Three months. Three months and 12 days, right? Is it 31 days this month? I don't know. Maybe 13 days. When I'm recording this, less when you're listening to this. My point being, we have just over three months until 2020. Most of us just spent all summer maintaining or, or not fully serious, not fully engaged. Some of us pushed hard. And some of us are smart enough to do both, which I will raise my hand for. I had a wedding, a bachelor party. I had a bunch of stuff going on. 
Still got to lean for a photo shoot. Lifestyle lean, something I can maintain and sustain. That's what you guys should be focusing on. But we have just over three months. That is a sprint. Your mindset needs to be a marathon. Don't get me wrong. Because you need to think longevity. You need to think sustainability. You need to periodize. But we are in a sprint to 2020. And you have two options. Finish the year where you're at right now. Or begin the year a new human being. And I know that sounds really over the top and kind of overly epic and exaggerated. But it's the truth. Three months is a long time to create a big amount of change. But it's also not that much time. So you need to act now. Whether you coach with us, which there is a link for in the description. (laughs) A little shameless plug. Or you coach with somebody else, somebody I've had on the podcast, somebody I just mentioned in this podcast, somebody that coaches me. You grab one of my eBooks. You join the membership site. Do something. You need skin in the game. Whether you join a Facebook group, you join a membership site, you buy an ebook, or you hire a coach. Through myself or my colleagues or somebody else that's trusted in the industry, you need to invest your money and your time, your watch and your wallet in order to have buy-in and to have skin in the game to create accountability. It's just part of it. Now, if you want to level up and do the highest level of accountability, you hire a coach or a mentor that you have to pay a good amount of money for. But that's how you change your life. And that's how you're going to become a new human being. You're going to be a new you by the end of 2019, in the beginning of 2020. I'm going to get off my soapbox now. I just had this rant because I just had such an awesome conversation with Mike. Um, I've been getting so many good, detailed questions that I dive into education. And I was reflecting on the fact that I have four coaches right now. um, And I'm excited about it. I'm fired up in each area of my life because of it. And I truly believe that coaching is the key. And I want you guys to take advantage of it. There's no reason why you shouldn't. I mean, at the end of the day, it's like we're so close to the end of the year. Finish strong. Start new. All right. I'll stop. It's almost 10 minutes of me doing, going on about this. So drum roll, please. Not a very good drum roll. Let's get on to the questions. Question number one, Bo Francie from the Facebook group. How do you help individuals? Oh, <laughs> one more announcement, guys. One more quick announcement. This is not going to be going on long. I'm just going to throw out a random date. We're going to do this for the rest of September. Right now, the private forum, the Boom Boom Performance Private Forum, it is for podcast listeners and, more importantly, ebook purchasers, which means the only way up till now that you can get into the Boom Boom Performance Private Forum is actually if you purchase an ebook. However, I'm going to change the game real quick. If you are listening to this podcast, I appreciate you. And I want to let you into the the podcast private Facebook group. So I want to let you in completely free because I want you to have access to asking me questions for the show. I want you to have access to me, to my team, to the community, to share ideas. Click the link in the description. Join the Facebook group. It is free. It is a community. It's free right now. It is a community of people that are just like you trying to achieve results just like you who like content just like you do. And we can all get better together. So click the link, join the description, uh, or join the the Facebook group. Click the link in the description. I'm jumbling my words there. And this is not a trick or a sales pitch. The reality is, is I actually don't sell anything in there at all. It's literally just for this private, uh, for this podcast to ask questions for the show and, and get answers and help you out. So click the link in the description. It'll be Facebook slash probably a bunch of numbers and stuff. <laughs> click that uh, and uh, you can join the group. I wanted to shout that out. I wanted to offer it for free because why not? Built for You is a program I just built and I created a new Facebook group specifically for the individuals who bought that. 
which by the way, if you did buy that and you were not in the Facebook group, I don't know what you're doing. Um, I would say less than half of the people that bought the book are in the Facebook group. Like it's shocking me how little people actually click the link to join the Facebook group that bought the book. It's like, this is the one place where you can get feedback and ask questions and drop videos. How are you not in there? And it's only people that purchased built for you blowing my mind. So if you bought the book and you're not in there, please jump in there. Anyway, everybody else click the link in the description, join the group, join the party. First question, Bo Francie, how do you help individuals who have been diagnosed with hypothyroidism? Sorry, hyperthyroidism. And it says manage. Did I not copy the whole question? Um, maybe not. So uh, how do you help individuals or maybe how do you help individuals manage who have been diagnosed with hyperthyroidism? Um, this is actually a really good question. And I mean, if I'm being completely authentic to the idea of individualized coaching is I can't really tell you because it's such an individual manner and because this is something that you can, should consult your doctor with. Now, I'm going to say two things. Number one, make sure you guys understand that I'm saying hyperthyroidism and not hypothyroidism because they're two different things. Um, but typically, like hyper, if we actually look at what hyperthyroidism creates, it actually creates a speeding up of the metabolism. So oftentimes, it's actually reducing movement to an extent, lowering intensity, uh, and increasing calories is really all it comes down to. So few few simple things that... I can say on this podcast because everything else that goes beyond this would be not necessarily out of my scope of practice, but just would be completely individual to, to the person that we're working with who has hyperthyroidism. Um, and I have some people personally in my life who have experienced that. So I, I actually do know firsthand what this is like. But uh, number one, eat more food. So if you're not at least at maintenance, then we should probably bring your calories up to about maintenance. The reality is if you have hyperthyroidism, your metabolism is more than likely working on overdrive. And that means you're probably have a really high caloric expenditure. So I would actually like you to eat at or above maintenance um, to make sure that you are managing your uh, healthy weight. Um, I would take your training and I would reduce all cardio and just strictly focus on a, a slower tempo bodybuilding style program. So we can still lift heavy, but I'm not, I'm, I'm making you calm down on rest periods. We're not doing metabolic conditioning. We're not doing any cardio. We're just lifting and trying to build muscle. Um, and then last but not least, I would just manage stress. Now, when I say manage stress, I mean in all ways, shapes, and form. I would manage stress from an emotional level, so maybe implementing some uh, meditation and better sleep habits. I would manage it from a caloric level, which I just spoke on, making sure you're not in a deficit. I would make sure that you are eating good food so you're not getting stress and inflammation inside of your gut internally. So really focusing on quote-unquote clean foods, which I do actually think will help. So more of a paleo-ish, vertical diet-ish diet, FODMAP-ish diet, um, still practicing macros for the main focus, but then implementing when you can control it, implementing like really healthy, quote unquote, clean foods, I think is smart with anybody who has any type of thyroid dysfunction at all. Um, environmental stress. So looking at the people in the surroundings that you are putting yourself in, so really, it just kind of boils down to, to three things, like lowering intensity and speed of training. So really focusing on like slower tempo bodybuilding, uh, making sure you're at maintenance and or a caloric surplus, and then managing all stress, gut, food, inflammation, sleep, emotional, so on and so forth, recovery. Um, and that's how I would do it. So like helping the individual beyond that gets very, very individualized, meaning what are your specific work situations, stress situations, training situations, training history, metabolic history? What is your goal? Are you trying to get leaner or build more muscle or just maintain or just 
fix the thyroidism. Um, so it kind of depends, and I shouldn't say fix, but manage better. Like what is the end goal? Um, and then what kind of stresses do you have in your life? Because the practices I'm going to implement in order to improve those three areas I just spoke on, training, nutrition, and stress, is going to be person-to-person dependent. So I hope that helps a little bit. Um, and then hypothyroidism is actually very similar. The difference is going to be you're not going to want to be in a caloric surplus, obviously. Um, I'm going to place more importance on the type of foods you're eating for sure. But I think in general, if you have issues with your thyroid, you're probably going to want to target in a kind of like a paleo hybrid diet, meaning like 80 to 90% of your food really is coming from those whole food sources. Uh, But hypothyroid is going to be a little bit different, especially because a lot of people with hypothyroidism actually have Hashimoto's and it's a very similar uh, autoimmune related disease. So um, some people mistaken it, right? They have Hashimoto's, they don't even, they neglect thinking harder about hormonal systems. And some people have hypothyroidism, don't realize they have Hashimoto's. Um, and they should probably watch the ingredients they're eating versus just the intake and so on and so forth. But a lot of it comes down to stress too. All right. Tony Marble, is it beneficial to be taking essential amino acids or branch chain amino acids before and or after I lift? If so, why? And which would be preferred? If not, why not? Um, now I know why it says manage after every question because I copy and paste them from Facebook. <laughs> anyway, um, okay, so Tony, uh, so for your specific situation, Tony Marble is a client of mine. Uh, he is also a client who does have some autoimmune-related dysfunctions uh, in, in issues. Therefore, he has some gut stress. So for you, I probably would recommend essential amino acids. I'm not a fan of branched-chain amino acids uh, simply because – they are still calories, they still spike insulin, yet they're missing key amino acids that actually help the branch chain amino acids produce more of a muscle protein synthetic response. So yes, BCAs are high in leucine and they will trigger muscle protein synthesis, but it's kind of like CBD, right? Like CBD is great and all, but it's one cannabinoid. And there's not enough research for me to say this with absolute certainty, but I'd highly suggest that CBD would probably work better Um, if you had all of the cannabinoids along with it. So not just CBD, but THC, and I don't know enough to know all the other ones. I mean, CBA, CBC, or whatever the other ones are. There's CB, a bunch of stuff. But there's a lot of different cannabinoids. And I kind of look at amino acids the same way. There's a bunch of different amino acids. So it's going to be more beneficial to have a full spectrum of aminos because they all build off of each other, and they all help each other work to greater extents. It's kind of like fat and vitamin D. Vitamin D is a fat-soluble vitamin. If you take it with water and no food that contains fat, it's going to be very hard for your body to absorb that vitamin D. I look at branching amino acids the same way. Um, uh, Steve Hall and one of his guests, I think it was Alex something, he just had on, had a good discussion about this as well. And basically, I mean, a lot of people are taking branched chain amino acids in one. They're doing it fasted, assuming that it's not breaking their fast. But there are calories in branched chain amino acids, and they do trigger... Uh, insulin to spike. So you're kind of not really fasting when you do that. However, we need to understand too that it is a mild insulin spike and protein in general isn't going to significantly impact the fasting period. So you can actually do a modified protein sparing fast where you fast for 16 to 18 hours, but just consume like low fat, low carb protein shakes. And you're still going to get the benefits because it's more of the very low carb and very low uh, calorie period of time that's creating a lot of the benefit inside of fasting, especially for weight loss, obviously, because it's lower calorie. But that's besides the point here. Um, I would recommend EAAs over BCAs 
any day in any situation, pre, during, or post-workout. Um, the reason I recommend Tony essential amino acids is because I know whey protein bugs your stomach. So you're resorting to plant protein, and I would rather you have essential amino acids than plant protein. And honestly, plant protein would work fine too because it's fortified with enough amino acids in there. It's micronized. That's the whole point. Um, But I probably would recommend EAAs, just down it real quick and then get to a meal. But at the same time, if you're eating within a couple hours of your training session, I also think it is a pretty useless cost of money for you right now. I don't see any point of getting essential amino acids to be completely honest. Um, I think if somebody is focused on muscle growth, um, performance and, or is on a cut and they're very, very lean and they need to maintain as much muscle mass as possible for stage or a photo shoot or something like that, then I think it's worth the money because it's just kind of an insurance policy. It's just doubling down to be sure that you are maintaining as much muscle as possible. Cause let's say you can't get to a meal for a couple of hours, but you really got to focus on maintaining muscle or you're like a, a, a thinner guy trying to build as much as possible. It's worth it. Um, but in almost all scenarios, and this goes for pre-workout too, I would rather somebody have whey protein because I think you're going to get more value out of just having whey protein than a essential amino acid or a branch chain amino acid. All right. Carmen Spitzer. What would you recommend females that get off the pill but having huge pain during their period? Any tips? Diet, supplements, da, da, da. You for sure talked about this already, but can you please also explain how – how someone can slash should adjust training and nutrition macros to the female cycle. So I'm not going to give hard advice on this because I think every individual is different. Um, and I'm, I'm never going to claim to be the, uh, the menstrual cycle guy or the person that is super dialed into the menstrual cycle with people. Um, and to be completely transparent with you, when we get applications, when people are having serious menstrual cycle issues, I actually refer them to Lisa or Caroline, um, who are obviously both coaches on my team, simply because they're better well-versed in this, not only from a personal experience level, but also they've worked with more people and they've studied and researched this topic more. So I'd actually defer most of this kind of stuff to them because I think they're better suited for the problem. Um, the next recommendation I would have is read the, I'll link it in the show notes, read the period manual. Um, I can't remember who wrote the book, but it's really, really good and it can help a lot of people. I think it's a, an excellent book for, um, all females who are interested in this and, and coaches in general to read so they get more awareness around this. The last thing, when you get off the pill, number one, it's going to take time. So if you get off the pill and you are experiencing pain during your period, if you are experiencing, um, irregularity with your menstrual cycle or your hormones or anything like that, you have to understand that it's common. And the longer you are on the pill, the more likely that is to occur. So the best thing for you to do, honestly, is just manage all of the stresses in your life. You shouldn't be in a deficit. You shouldn't be training in your MRV, meaning maximum recoverable volume, maybe not even maximum adaptive volume, which is the higher end of volume that allows you to grow. Um, you probably should be a more closer to maintenance volume or minimal effective volume, meaning just enough to progress a little bit, but at a very slow rate. Um, you should be at maintenance calories, if not a little bit higher. Uh, you should be sleeping eight to nine hours a day, and you should be having 80 to 90% of your food coming from highly micronutrient-dense and easily digestible foods. What this is going to do is you are going to control all systemic fatigue and uh, inflammation in your body. You are going to be more easily able to recover from training. You are going to be at or above maintenance to make sure you're not in a deficit. You're going to be controlling gut stress. You're going to be controlling uh, 
physical, physiological, and psychological stress through gut health protocols and better sleep. So overall, all we're trying to do here is recover better and manage stress better. So you're bringing intensity of everything you were doing down just to make sure your body can actually recover because it's trying to recover and it's trying to relearn how to do things on its own without this pill. Um, you are blocking and tweaking with hormones for quite a while on the pill and it's just part of the journey to get back to normal. So I think there's less specificity uh, to adjust because it depends on the person. Am I dropping intensity? By what percentage? Am I dropping RPE? Am I dropping volume? Am I changing certain exercises to decrease load um, uh, on specific hip structures and things like that? Because there are there is merit to say like during uh, PMS, you should avoid like heavy pulling from the floor and things like that because injury risk is higher, so on and so forth. So there are specific things that I can dig into person to person. But as a whole, to be honest with you, I would just suggest managing stress. For supplements, like there's not a ton that I'm going to recommend. I mean, you could go down the route of supplementing with like DIM or ashwagandha and things that are going to be more adaptogens that help with stress and hormonal management. You could supplement with zinc, magnesium, uh, and vitamin C, let's say, for example, to improve immune function and recovery as well as improve sleep and neurological recovery during during your sleep. Um, you could supplement with creatine and protein and fish oil and things like that to just help with inflammation and recovery. But at the end of the day, like, again, it's all very, very specific to the individual. And the biggest thing you want to focus on that I'm going to leave it at is you just, you just really want to really just double down on stress management. Grant Kale, favorite fad diet claims that are so ridiculous you laughed out loud. <laughs> That's a really good one. Um, hmm. Favorite diet claims. That's so hard. I, I honestly, I, like, I should have read that before. I don't know. I think the blood type diet is funny. I didn't really laugh out loud, um, especially because my grandma gave me the book, and the last thing I'm going to do is laugh in my grandma's face. <laughs> so I took that and said thank you for the book. Uh, but there's just no good hard science to prove the blood type diet, uh, the efficacy in it. So I, I kind of laughed at that one. Um I might have to come back to this question, man. That is really, really hard. I don't think like, honestly, I think the problem here is I don't laugh at fad diets. I actually get angry because I, I know they're making people believe. I think the whole alkaline thing was funny when, when people were really going hard on that. Um, I laugh at uh, keto and vegan, not because of the theory, like if somebody's vegan or vegetarian because of ethical reasons, I support it. And I actually like really like working with them because I think it's a good cause. But um, I laugh when people try to make hard arguments for veganism being uh, more health conscious and better than an animal-based diet just because the research is so clear that there's so many good nutrients in animals. And I just, I don't see the reason to argue though. Like to me, I laugh when people argue about it. I laugh when people argue for keto for performance because it's clear that carbohydrates are going to support performance better. Um, and why argue? If you enjoy keto because you feel better 90% of the time, then do it. Why would, Why are we even arguing about it? I always say to people, like, what I eat doesn't make you shit. And I think that's, like, my life statement. <laughs> like, don't worry about what I'm doing. It's for me, not you. Um, but there's no, like, really one that made me laugh. You know what I mean? Like, there's no fad diet that I can think of that really – 
really made me laugh. I know there was some like celebrity diets. Like I think Tom Brady had a diet for a while. Any diet that's like do this because of this person, like that shit makes me laugh pretty hard. But I'm gonna, I might have to come back to this question, and I might have to. Actually, here's what we'll do. I'm gonna Google fad diets. First of all, let's see how many results there are. There's eight million three hundred twenty thousand results. Damn. Um, can I get a list of fad diets here? Fad diets you shouldn't try. Dubious diets, the raw food diet, alkaline diets, the blood type diet, the werewolf diet. What? Also called the lunar diet. This is one. This one is simply fasting according to the lunar cycle. Get out of here. Cookies diet. I mean, sounds amazing. Dr. Siegel's cookie diet, the Hollywood cookie diet, and the Smart for Life cookie diet all promise that eating cookies will help you drop pounds. Of course, you don't get to chow down on chocolate chips all day. You eat about 500, 600 calories a day from high-protein, high-fiber weight loss cookies. One cookie company even makes the cookies from egg and milk protein for breakfast, lunch, and any snacks. Then you eat a normal dinner for a total of 1,000 calories. Yeah, you put it in a calorie deficit. The five-bite diet. Eat whatever you want, but only fights five bites of it. On this diet developed by obesity doctor Alwyn Lewis, MD, you skip breakfast and eat only five bites of food for lunch and five more for dinner. Come on, man. You're just like starving people. The Master Cleanse Lemonade Diet. This diet has been around for decades, and there are tons of variations, pretty much all involving subsiding for days on only lemon juice, maple syrup, and cayenne pepper mixed in water. You are essentially just drinking diuretics. You'll shed mostly water weight. Once you start eating real foods again, you will gain all the way back. Common side effects include fatigue, nausea, dizziness, and dehydration. Jesus. The baby food diet. I mean, that's a pretty low-calorie diet, but I will say baby food is not bad. Shannon cracks me up or laughs at me when I like try Blakely's food, but it's, it's not bad. The cabbage soup diet, the grapefruit diet, the sleeping beauty diet. If you are asleep, you're not eating. <laughs> so sleep all the time. Stupid. The HCG diet, that one sucks. I did that. You limit yourself to 500 calorie days and you drop this little HCG droplet in under your tongue. The tapeworm diet, gross. I'm not even going to look at that picture. The cotton ball diet, consuming cotton balls soaked in orange juice a diet technique used may have been born on YouTube in chat rooms and on Facebook is an incredibly dangerous way to suppress your appetite. Jesus Christ. Talk about eating disorder. Those are some funny ones. I don't know which one of those made me laugh higher. Maybe the, the sleep diet where you just sleep all the time. I mean, I don't know how fun that would be. But there is some good diets. The South Beach diet, Weight Watchers diet, the Mediterranean diet, the Zone diet, the Atkins diet, the Paleo diet. Like the, the thing with these diets is that um, they're actually just ways to better adhere to a calorie deficit, right? So those ones make sense. Um, they're not super unhealthy. I think they're incorrect. I'm a bigger fan of uh, a macronutrient-based plan that is individualized to you and creates flexible dieting, obviously, because it's more sustainable. You can periodize it, and it's, it's a way that you can use numbers to predict the results you're going to see and adjustments to make. Um, but most diets are just ways to trick people into a caloric deficit. I think the faster people can learn that, the more they can avoid these fad diets because then they can just go, oh, I'll just create a caloric deficit eating the foods I actually want to eat instead. Um, but that was fun because I got to look at some really funny diets. I've actually never heard of some of those. The cotton bile diet, the lemonade diet, just drink maple syrup, lemonade, and cayenne pepper all day. What? All right. 
James Ward, any tips for knee inflammation after training? I don't have any acute injuries and it doesn't bother me during training. It, it, is it just more of overdoing it or does it just come with territory with training? I would say it definitely doesn't come from the territory with training. Um, the things that come up to me in my mind are going to be um, weak tendons. So you might want to either add protein, implement more inflammatory, anti-inflammatory foods to avoid inflammation, which is going to stress the joints. Um, possibly collagen. If you can get a high quality collagen, it will improve collagen production in your joints. And I know collagen is kind of like a uh, anti-supplement right now, but the reality is, is if you can produce more collagen, your tendons and ligaments will be stronger. So if you can get a high quality one, it, it may make a difference in that. Um, it's not a wonder drug and it's not going to help weight loss, but it may help that. Um, especially if there is some micro tears that you are unaware of inside of the ligaments and tendons. Um, I would say weak hamstrings, both the muscle and the hamstring tendon. So you might want to do less quad work, more hamstring work. Um, and lastly, it's probably positioning of how you're training. So I see a lot of people, for example, have too much knee glide going over their toes on a squat or a um, lunge. And it's not because you have bad, it's bad to let your knee glide forward over your toes during a squat or a lunge, but it's because you have poor ankle mobility. So as you do that, your heel's not truly in contact with the floor. So you should A, work on ankle mobility and B, not let your knee glide so far forward until you can increase your ankle mobility so that you can continuously apply pressure through your heel, the balls of your feet and your toes during a squat or lunge. Like your whole foot should be gripping the floor and planted while allowing your knee to glide forward. If you can do that, all the weight's not shifting forward and it's not being placed directly towards your tibia and you're probably not going to have any knee issues. Um, so if you're feeling, uh, I would say like this. So quick fixes, fix your hip and ankle mobility because oftentimes if your ankle or your hips are not mobile, your knee will try to make up for that with mobility when it is a more stable joint and therefore you're going to get too much movement and you're going to get some issues. Um, also, if you don't have good knee stability, like try some balance tests. If you don't have good knee stability, work on more unilateral work that pushes you to work on balance and improve your stability inside that knee. If you are feeling pain in the back of your knee, try more hamstring work. Um, I would probably try ha more hamstring work regardless because it's good to have an offset of more posterior to anterior work. Um, if you're getting pain in the uh, tibia, the front part of your lower knee or just the front of your knee in general, um, specifically at the lower though, I would say you probably need to focus on keeping your heel in contact with the floor when doing lower body movements and or improve ankle mobility so that you can do that while still having forward knee glide during a squat because some of it is good. Um, and then lastly, if you are having pain in the front, you might want to try seeing if you are lacking flexibility inside your hip flexors and or quad on that leg. If you have super, super tight quads, it will pull on the knee and you probably have some issues there. Um, if it was hurting during, I would say warm up your hamstrings before you squat, for example, but I don't think that's the case because you said it's, it's totally fine, uh, during, it's just afterwards. La, la, la lampin from Instagram, la lampin. Can a person eat too much protein? I have been watching my macros for four months now and right now I am in maintenance mode, which is about 1800 calories a day and 150 grams of protein. I am active. I work out for at least 45 to 60 minutes, five to six days per week. And I weigh 137 pounds. Thoughts. Um, so I will link some good research by Dr. Jose Antonio in the show notes. 
Um, but I'm gonna write that down because otherwise I will forget. Um, I'm gonna write all those things down because guess what, guys? I forgot to write down that Mike and his podcast with me needs to be in there too. Um, I, uh, Jose Antonio is the godfather of protein, you could say. I'll link some of his research in there. He has done research that I believe it was like 3.5 grams per kilogram. Um, it, it was roughly two grams per pound. Um, I think it might have been just over two grams per pound or it was at exactly two grams per pound, which is double the amount of protein needed to increase muscle mass. So by no means is doubling your body weight in protein going to lead to more muscle, more fat loss, but it showed that there was no adverse health side effects and it didn't cause more fat accumulation. I believe this actually put people in a caloric surplus. So even though they were eating in a surplus via protein, they didn't gain any excess body fat. So it's a really good sign that no, you really can't eat too much protein um, unless you have previously determined kidney issues specifically. Um, I think you'll be totally fine. Um, so you weigh 137 pounds and you're eating 150 grams of protein. That's just over one pound or one gram per pound. I think that's honestly perfect for a 137 pound female. I, I see no issue with that whatsoever, especially with how much you're training. And if you're eating a good plant-based diet, meaning you still have animal products, but you're having, you eat vegetables, you have carbs, obviously, and things like that, you're going to get trace proteins from those sources, and those are less bioavailable. They're not the best and most optimal protein sources. Therefore, having just over your body weight in protein is going to lead us to having more bioavailable proteins. You're going to have higher leucine and amino acid-rich proteins coming from your diet. So I think eating 150 grams of protein while weighing 137 pounds is actually perfect. Um, I don't think you're going to have any issues. The only time you're really going to experience issues is gut health issues and not really necessary. There's no data to show us that having a high protein diet or eating more than your body weight in protein is actually going to lead to negative gut health. It's just more of like a bloat, gas, and digestive stress thing. So that, and that's personal biofeedback. So I know a lot of people who can eat 1.5 grams per pound and they have no gut issues whatsoever, no stress on their gut. Um, and they don't gain body fat. It actually helps them lose body fat, build muscle. And then I know people who eat that much. And although it's helping them produce the body composition results they have and they stick with it because of that, it creates more gas and more bloat. So you have to kind of see your personal biofeedback. And then I also know people that it's less about the total amount of protein and more about the type of protein. So for example, I can eat, and there's two caveats to this. So one, it's less about how much protein you eat per day and more about how much you eat per meal. So I can eat 200 grams of protein a day and I weigh between 160, 165, and I'm totally fine. But if I split that up into, let's say, four meals at 50 grams, totally fine. If I have two meals at 30 and then two meals well above 50, so that would be, what, 60, 70 grams, then I have some issues, right? It's too much in one sitting and I will have some gut issues. But there's a caveat here. I can have 70 grams of protein in a single meal through steak, no issue whatsoever. I can have 70 grams of protein in a single meal through chicken and I will have way more blow, way more digestive stress. Now, is that because... Steak is harder to break down, so it takes longer to digest, so the effects is more spread out? Or is it just because chicken just gets me wrong? Who knows? 
There's not really any way to tell. But because I'm aware of this, I know that if I'm having chicken, I'm going to keep it pretty light because I don't want to have too much chicken and be super gassy and bloated and feel like shit. But if we're going doing steak, I'm going ham and I'm eating a massive steak and I'm getting all the protein because I love eating a big steak. Eggs, I'm the same way. So it just really depends. I think people need to kind of pay attention and take notes of how they feel after eating certain meals and then you can kind of determine that. But again, this is nothing along the lines of like health or risk. There's no health issues here or really serious safety hazards. It's just saying like, hey, you might be gassy and bloated if you eat too much protein in a single setting. Uh, but otherwise, I think you're fine. 150 grams at 137, I don't think you're going to have any issue, especially if you're splitting that up between four to five meals. All right. Next question from Instagram. Lisa Perry with two eyes. I have heard that it's normal to gain some weight while on a reverse diet from water fluctuation and carbs getting back into the body. But how much is normal and when should I stop adding calories? I started at 1,500 calories and have worked up to 1,750 calories. And now my recent body weight has increased by 0.7 to 1 kilograms in two weeks. So that's about 1.5 to 2.2 pounds. Um, I'm just going to read this in pounds since she did it in kilograms. I added 50 calories every week and carbs have gone from 140, about 140 to 150, all the way up to 200 to 220 grams. I haven't noticed any unusual fat gain or water retention. Should I stop adding calories and make this my new maintenance or is this normal and should I go on with my reverse diet? I am not really happy that my cal intake is this low, but I need to be in the weight class and powerlifting comps. I'm just worried that I start maintenance too soon. Few st stats about me. I am 5'2 and 114.5 pounds. Went down from 130 pounds to 112 pounds. Uh, and then obviously she gained two and a half pounds during the reverse. Training four times a week and have increased training volume and intensity with the reverse diet. So, first and foremost, I think you're doing things pretty well. Um, you're increasing volume intensity as you reverse diet. That's good. Um, you're only 114 pounds. Um, and so your calories really aren't that low to be completely honest with you. I think people see 1200 and 1600 as these like staple, like you're at 1200. Oh my God. Or you're at 1600. Oh my God. When reality, it's all relative to body weight, right? So if you're 114 pounds, um, you're above a normal maintenance. A normal maintenance would be actually 1600 for that light of a person. So the fact that you worked them up to 1750 is great. 220 grams of carbs a day is solid for somebody your size. Um, now, obviously, you can push farther if possible, but here's what I would say. Every one gram of carb holds three to four grams of water. So right there, you're pulling in more water into your muscle cell, which is good, into your gut, into everything really, but you're, having, you're storing more water, which is not a bad thing, but that's going to weigh the scale down a little bit. You've added uh, almost, almost 100 carbs realistically so 60 all the way from 60 to 80 grams so you've you've upped your carbs 60 to 80 grams per day so that right there is going to hold you know 120 to 190 180 grams of water that's some weight add to that you've also added some protein you've added some fat i'm assuming and on top of that just just not even counting water you've you've got more food bulk in your body that actually weighs the scale down as well so now we have this combination of more food volume in your body, more water being pulled into the cell in your body, more muscle glycogen being stored, and probably more sodium because most food has sodium or gets sodium added to it. Sodium also holds water. So this is something people forget about quite often. 
if we add calories, what trace minerals that retain water are being added with that? Sodium. So now you have three things that are going to weigh down the scale, not including the fact that you're potentially building more muscle. Seeing how you're adding volume and intensity and you're not seeing any visual water retention or fat gain, that tells me that you're adding muscle. So that's four things that you're adding into your body, onto your body, that are going to weigh the scale down. So the fact that you've increased that much and you've gained only two and a half pounds, one and a half to two and a half pounds, I don't think you have any issue. I think you're actually spot on. I think that's all either A, water retention, food volume, A, water retention, B, food volume, C, sodium retention, which is more water volume. So let's not even count that. A, water retention, B, food volume, C, muscle tissue. I think you're spot on. There's nothing I would change here. I think you're, you're spot on. And the reason I actually wanted to go over this question is because I think a lot of people get scared of the scale jumping when in reality, it's not a bad thing. It's part of the process and it's very normal. It's very rarely fat, especially at that minimal. If you start gaining over five pounds during reverse, then you can start saying like, shit, I'm gaining a little bit of fat, which doesn't necessarily mean a bad thing. Some people need to go through that, but it could potentially mean that you're gaining more than just water retention or food volume. So something to think about. Um, but I think you're spot on to be completely honest. I think you're, you're dialed in. I think you're good. Um, you asked, when should I stop adding calories? I would stop adding calories when you notice fat accumulation or water retention or your weight gets a little bit too high. You probably, if you want to maintain leanness and make sure you're not gaining too much weight before your comp, you're probably going to want to keep your weight around where it's at within a pound or so. Therefore, it's probably not advantageous to add any more calories unless you know you're not gaining any fat. Um, now you say you don't like your calories being this low. If you are feeling bogged down, then add more calories. I think the most important thing to do is look at your biofeedback. How is your sleep? How is your performance? How is your stress? How is your, uh, progressive overload? How is your recovery? How is your mood? How is your cravings? If those things you can't check off the list and say, yeah, they're all really good. Then you should keep going. If they are all really good, then you can stop right there. Um, if you suffer with flexibility, meaning like your calories are up, your carbs are up, but your fats are still low that you have no flexibility or social aspect of your diet, then maybe you reverse fats up a little bit just to create a little bit more flexibility. But as a whole, I think you've been pretty successful at it. Um, I know 1,750 calories doesn't seem like much, but for your body weight, it's not terribly high. And you got to remember that you've lost over 15 pounds, which means that your total body mass is lower, which also means that you are not burning as many calories at maintenance or at rest simply because you have less mass on your body and your body will move less because of that. Therefore, you will burn less calories while moving, so on and so forth. So some form of metabolic adaptation is guaranteed. It's very hard to uh, get leaner and lose weight and not have to maintain on less calories. It's damn near impossible. Metabolic adaptation is a survival technique that your body's going to undergo regardless. So I think you should only add more calories from where you're at if your biofeedback is poor, if your performance is suffering, um, I think you are totally fine where you're at. And I think for most people, you have to expect a little bit of weight gain. You have to trust biofeedback above all. And you should kind of find that sweet spot of gaining a little weight and not gaining too much weight. Okay, we have a few really long questions to finish off this podcast with. Emma Beckara underscore. Hi, Cody. I found the podcast recently and have been binging episodes and have turned friends onto it too. I love the content. Thank you. I seriously appreciate that. And anybody who shares the podcast, thank you so much, seriously. 
I am a college student and sadly cannot afford coaching at this moment, but have been on a fitness journey for about eight months now. Since February, I have been weightlifting and have lost about 30 pounds. Good shit. I am down to about 114 pounds and 5'3". That is too weird. The last girl was 114.5 pounds and at 5'2". Really close similarity. And thought this would be my goal below it even but I still have some stomach fat and other fat I would like to lose. I am burnt out of being in a fat loss and I'm dying to get calories up so I can gain strength in the gym. I feel my newbie gains are slowly slowly down and it's getting harder to get stronger. And I'm really excited to move on to getting stronger at maintenance. I'm eating about 1,400 calories right now and walk 20,000 steps a day as a student. That's a lot. And my losing has slowed to about 0.6 pound average a week. Should I keep at it for a while longer to try and lose the stomach fat or start reversing out. Thank you in advance for the advice. Um, you've been on this fitness journey for eight months now. I would stop and reverse out. You've lost 30 pounds and you've been doing it for eight months. Those are two signs that A, you've changed your body dramatically. B, you've had a long timeline doing it. And C, you are very active. Not only do you train, but you do 20K steps a day because you're walking around campus all the time and you're only eating 1,400 calories. Um, I don't think 1,400 calories is like deathly low being only 114 pounds, but given your activity level, it's pretty damn low and you should probably reverse out of it, especially because you literally just told me how bad your biofeedback is. So the fact that you're telling me this and you're saying how you are feeling a little bit more lethargic and fatigued and you're burnt out, I would definitely get out of the diet. I think a lot of people underestimate the power of building muscle and how it can translate to looking leaner. So for most people in your situation, uh, I, would, I would mark this as a successful fat loss phase. You've accomplished your fat loss phase. You've dieted. You've had success with it. Now it's time to reverse out of it, find maintenance, optimize training and nutrient timing and sleep and stress management, and then really just double down on building some muscle. If you can spend some time building muscle, even just half the time you spent Actually, I'd probably say about the same amount of time. So for the next six to eight months, let's say you, you find maintenance, you maintain, and then you start building muscle, and that takes you about six to eight months. I think you will either A, look leaner, or B, look the same, but be heavier because you have more muscle mass underneath the quote-unquote fat that you are looking to lose. And then at that point, you've reestablished a good metabolic baseline. You've actually reestablished a better baseline for muscle mass and strength, and you are in a more favorable position to start a new fat loss phase. And after that second fat loss phase, you will actually look leaner and you'll have more de muscle definition underneath the fat. Um, I see a lot of people who are constantly chasing fat loss, especially women, and they never spend time stopping to actually chase muscle growth. And if they did stop to chase muscle growth, I I can almost guarantee that they will look a lot leaner when they accomplish their weight loss goal because they will have more muscle mass, even from the abs. I mean, if you look at abs and trying to get rid of belly fat, like your abs are a muscle, you should hypertrophy them. That way you are more visibly going to see them at a higher body fat percentage. Now, it doesn't mean you shouldn't lose fat, but it's usually the last fat to lose. So the best thing for you to do right now really is take a break from dieting, find maintenance, stay at maintenance, and then chase muscle growth for a while and then come back to the fat loss phase. Riley underscore Lighten. Hi, Cody. I follow your page and I, and I loved macros when I started them. I started seeing results and was consistently losing about a pound a week. It was motivation to keep going. I'm the type of person who dives in head first to do what I do. However, I suddenly stopped losing weight and even started gaining weight. I was super compliant with my macros and my weights. I was irregular, so my first thought was fiber. Maybe my cut in carbs caused insufficient fiber. Well, I upped my carbs, but I'm still below maintenance, became more regular, but I'm still gaining weight. 
I have been on these macros for a little over 12 weeks, so I'm thinking I should have gone ahead and taken a diet break to eat at maintenance, but honestly, I'm scared to lose my progress and my weight has been slowly increasing anyway. What are your thoughts? So there's a lot here. Um, I definitely think like like if you're irregular on a diet, it's, it's usually from one of two things, either A, insufficient fiber or B, stress. So if you were cutting carbs and you know your fiber is like below 10 to 15 grams per 1,000 calories, then it might be fiber. I always suggest like women, you should get 20 grams or more. Men, you should get 25 grams or more, ideally. Um, if you're not in a super big deficit, aim for a little bit above that. So, But if you calculate 10 to 15 grams per 1,000 calories, that usually ends up being right around that point for most people. Um, if you can check that off the box and you're still irregular, then it's probably stress. However, you said you got more regular after you added the fiber. Good, you accomplished that. Um, but you're still gaining weight. Uh, I definitely think a diet break would help. It's just so hard. See, these questions are so tough for me to dive into because I have like 80 more questions for you. What is your lifestyle like? What is your work like? What is your family life like? What does your training look like? How much cardio are you doing? How much are you sleeping? Like I would probably go into every single avenue that would like apply more stress to your life and try to relieve that stress. Because if we can relieve that stress, it's more than likely going to help you manage that. Now, yes, you could take a diet break. Um, but if you've been at this deficit 12 weeks straight, like actually 12 weeks straight consistently throughout the whole time, one single diet break is probably not going to reverse adaptation and cause you to start losing weight. You know, you might have to spend four plus weeks at a maintenance phase and then come back to diet. That's why I really do personally like to do diet breaks every two to four weeks. Um, even if it's just like two to three days, like it's not huge, but it's something and it does relieve stress quite a bit, helps digestion, helps training, helps the psychological, um, aspect of dieting, so on and so forth. And it just, it's such a game changer for people trying to see success long-term. Um, that's usually where I go with it. So it, it's hard for me to say right now, to be honest with you, Riley, and I'm sorry that I don't have a great answer for you, but if, you are not seeing weight loss and you are already, and you can't pull calories. That's a big thing here too. Like you didn't tell me how many calories you're consuming, but if you came to me and I'm like, Hey, your calories aren't actually that low. Your carbs are just super low, meaning you're following a high fat, high protein diet. I would actually probably flip the switch and go, Hey, let's do high carbs, drop the fats moderately low and keep your calories exactly where they're at. See what happens. Sometimes that simple switch, like it's just a good change of pace for your metabolism. It's a good change of pace for your energy systems and for your body. And sometimes that's all you need. I have plenty of clients that I will flip-flop like that. Calories stay exactly the same. Boom, they see results. I have other clients that I'm like, hey, I think you're overly stressed. We're going to take a seven-day diet break. Boom, they see results afterwards. Um, so it really just depends on the person. Um, I have other people where I'm like, hey, your training isn't optimized. Let's tweak your training. Let's add cardio. Um, and then for some people, it's like, hey, your lifestyle stress is too high. Let's change. Let's get better sleep. Let's focus on more micronutrient-dense foods, um, which is a completely another point. Like sometimes people are too flexible with their diet. I'm like, hey, like you're hitting your macros, but you're extremely flexible. Let's focus on more bro-like meals and get cleaner foods. And I think your macros will, A, be more accurate because the foods you're tracking are more accurate and easy to track because they're, they're not food labels that are estimated up or down 20 to 25%. Rather, they're actually just real foods, meat, produce, so on and so forth. So it's going to be more accurate and you're going to digest them better and you're going to get more micronutrients from them and boom, results happen. So there's a lot of routes I would take with this, but usually it's one of those, those four or five things. All right. Last question. Um, I'm leaving this one as unknown uh, just because it's very specific and I don't want their coach to hear it because um, he's just looking for a second opinion. 
hey man, love the podcast. Thank you for helping me become a better coach to my clients. Absolutely, dude. Uh, I need an opinion on my prep macros four weeks out. So first and foremost, I really can't give solid advice to anybody who is only four weeks out from a prep um, simply because that is such a specific scenario. I would need to know exactly how the rest of your prep went and what how your body responded and reacted to the adjustments I've made thus far. But here's what you said. Started at 200 pounds, have been all up and down, but now I'm sitting at 187 pounds and six foot one. Here's my meal plan. He sent me a picture of it. Um, very, very clean foods. Um, yeah, only one meal with starchy carbs. Um, one meal with fruit. The rest is like veggies and proteins. So very minimal, very classic bro bodybuilding diet, but you're getting ready for stage at four weeks out. That's usually what I'm, I mean, that's, that, that makes sense. Here's my meal plan. I've been dealing with water retention issues the whole time, which comes up when I have a planned cheat meal or when I can't shit. I have been battling an inability to shit off and on through the entire prep. So he's had digestive issues the entire time. The only thing we found success with is supplementing with PB and magnesium, et cetera. I have been resisting my coach dropping carbs too much because I don't see the benefit in leaving that much protein in, and I definitely see the benefit in more carbs. He's convinced that the, the carbs will get in the way of me using body fat as a fuel source, even though I'm not fat adapted anyway, dot, 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 thoughts. Um, so here's what I would say, man. I think this is very, very tough. I almost regret picking this question because it's so specific, uh, but I'm going to do my best. Um, I actually don't think your protein is that high. Um, honestly, like your total protein intake for the day is 230 grams and you were 200 pounds. You're 187 now. I think going into prep, I think that's actually perfect because you need that much protein just to maintain muscle when you're in a big deficit, which you're in. You're in a big deficit right now. So you need extra protein above a gram per pound. So I think that's fine. Um, I see the value of, of dropping carbs because – here, here's the deal. There's two scenarios I pull with this. Number one, I have clients where they retain water, so I actually have to drop fats and give them carbs because the carbs help blunt cortisol down, so they retain less water because I don't think you're retaining water because of fat. I think you're retaining water because of cortisol. Um, but you're four weeks out from a show. So the other part of me goes, dude, cortisol is going to be high no matter what. And cortisol being high won't fully mask fat loss at that capacity. So if you're as lean as you actually should be for a stage, I don't think cortisol coming up and water retention is going to truly mask total fat loss for that level of leanness. Um, so I would always, I would probably opt for something different. So in here you have your, your training time and your, uh, your pre-workout meal in the PM in the afternoon. My thing would be this, man, like cortisol is high in the morning. I would probably have carbs first thing in the morning train right after that um, and then have the rest of your meals no carb. I think that would help with balancing cortisol levels. I think that would help balance water retention. And I think you would still accomplish the goal of keeping carbs low because I understand your value in seeing carbs. Um, I do agree with your coach with how high your protein is right now. Um, I see the benefit in carbs, but at the same time, your fats are super low right now too. I mean, you're getting ready for stage. So it's not a matter of like, are you following a low carb or a low fat approach, you're following a low calorie approach. It's all fucking low, but that's part of stage. So it's hard for me to say because I probably wouldn't want your fats any lower than they are, that 36 grams per day, which is extremely low. But again, you're getting ready for stage. It's a completely different beast. 
So I would probably honestly agree with what you were doing right now. I don't, I don't think there's anything wrong. I think you need to manage stress. So I would probably go with like, I would probably change your training time to the morning, put your carbs around that to try to kind of help with the cortisol. I would probably really try to sleep eight to nine hours a night to be completely honest with you. Um, and just try to lower stress. I think that would help with the water retention. Um, your inability to shit could be because you have low fiber in your diet. Um, I go back and forth, like four weeks out, you're, you're going to be less regular regardless because you just have less food coming in. Um, but if you've been struggling as much as you are right now, the whole entire prep, then I would say it's probably something you were eating that is causing a gut issue, a digestive issue. And that could be the reason you're retaining water. So this is kind of a can of worms. There's a lot of things to open up here. And uh, like I said, I can't give you too much stress. The, what, what I would say is your protein is, is probably about 1.2 grams per pound. I think that's perfect during a cut. Your carbs and fats are low. So although I, I agree with you, like more carbs would probably help you right now. I also think that in general, you can't really raise either one of them if you have more fat to lose during a contest prep. I think your best bet is managing stress to reduce the water retention and just get through it, man. Like that's the best advice I can give. Um, I also don't see the benefit, and, and you kind of alluded to this, in dropping protein so that you can raise carbs. I don't think that's a smart decision when extreme fat loss is your goal because carbs are more likely to block fat loss than protein is. It's just plain and simple. Um, I, I wouldn't necessarily say that carbs are getting in the way of, quote unquote, using body fat as fuel um, because I think no matter where your carbs or fat are, your calories are going to dictate that. Um, and like you said, I don't think you are fat adapted right now because your your fats are low too. Um, but I do think your carbs are, or your calories in general are low enough to lead to fat loss. And I think you're you're kind of on the path that you need to be on to be completely transparent, man. I think your best bet truly is managing stress better so that you can see overall weight loss. Um, and at the end of the day, this is a contest prep, man. It is a grind. And although I couldn't provide a lot of value in this answer, I think this is a good question for the listeners in general to hear because it gives you guys some context into how serious uh, bodybuilding is. It's a sport and you have to grind. You have to get to low levels and that's just part of it, you know? So unfortunately, I'm not able to help you out too much with that, man. I'm going to DM you right now and give you some more feedback and, and kind of uh, give you my thoughts. But at the end of the day, the best thing to do when you're stalled out on fat loss and, and you don't have many cards to play with your macros, manage stress. Before I let you go, I just want to say thanks. I seriously appreciate you spending this last hour or so with me, educating yourself to get better results. It still humbles me to this day that people around the world literally have me in their headphones or their speakers just to learn. It's so empowering and because of that, I have three quick things for you. The first one is a personal favor. Please leave me a five-star rating and review on iTunes. When you do this, not only does it help me learn and get better at making podcasts for you to get better results, but it helps us grow inside of iTunes, which allows us to invest more, again, to get you better results. The second thing, head over to boomboomformance.com slash sign dash up or click the link in the show notes to get your free copy of the Nutrition Hierarchy. This is everything you need to know about nutrition to change your body composition or performance inside of a manual. I take the leading evidence inside of research and all the principles, methods, and tools based on some of the top professionals in the industry, and I put them all in a book so you can learn more about your nutrition and get better results. The third thing, this is a personal invitation to shoot me a DM on Instagram or email me at cody at boomboomperformance.com. I will help you troubleshoot anything you need. This is literally an invitation to jump in my inbox and ask me anything you want and let me help you. 
All right, guys, that's all I got for you this time. I appreciate you being here, and I'll see you next time.